This is Jewish Board Talk with Sharif Zephard, only on 101.9 High FM. From an early age, Marlene Silbert was aware that people of color were treated differently. Her dad, a lawyer, defended black activists and took her into a township to show her the terrible conditions that black South Africans were living in. He commented that there were no schools there, and the young Marlene decided then to become a teacher, and she did. This is part of a testimonial that is included in Jonathan Anser's book, Mentures in the Trenches, and Marlene joins me now to tell me more. Marlene, welcome, and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Marlene, you did eventually go into education, and uh, specifically Holocaust education. You became the deputy principal of um, Hertzlia and later the director of the Cape Town Holocaust and Genocide Center. But tell me how it all started. I knew very little about government policies when I was at primary school. And I went to boarding school in Bloemfontein. It was an all-girls school. And again, living a very secluded kind of life. But my life changed completely when I went to Cape Town University. I studied um, English and drama and was very um, interested in all performing arts. And I was at university for probably three months, and I was sitting in the canteen having coffee with one of the students. His name was Norman. And I said, Norman, I've just read in the paper that that international mimus Marcel Marceau is coming to South Africa, and he's going to be performing in Cape Town for one week only. The minute the booking office opens, we must book. And Norman frowned, and he sat back. He said, Marlene, where do you come from? I said, what do you mean? He said, Marlene, I'm colored. I'm not allowed to go to any of these performances. You know, I I couldn't speak. I was shocked. And I started questioning him. And we spent the rest of the day talking about apartheid laws. And my life changed completely. By the end of that day, I was another person. The following morning, I joined NUSAS, the National Union of South African Students, because at that time, Norman had told me that the government was introducing a bill that would separate the universities and the NUSAS students were fighting for non-segregation, university autonomy, academic freedom, and I joined that group. And we were protesting, we were fighting, we were having continual meetings. And I became very, very involved in student activism. Probably towards the end of that year, beginning of the following year, I was asked whether I'd serve on the um, InterVarsity Committee, which I did, and the RAG Committee, which I also did. And in my third year, I was asked whether I would be prepared to stand for the SRC. And I said, no, I don't think so. I don't feel like having to do a manifesto about myself. And it was John Ditcott at the time. And he said to me, I'll do your manifesto. 
but you are definitely going to stand. And I was the only woman elected onto the SRC. I then became head woman student of the university and head woman student of Hibernia Women's Residence. And of course, I spent more time actually on my student activism than I did on my work. But fortunately, I did. Yeah, fortunately, I did complete my first course. And then I did a postgrad on the teaching of speech and hearing disabled. And after I had qualified, she got married three months later. But the following year, Immediately after I'd qualified, I was contacted by the Western Cape Department of Education to ask whether I would be prepared to become an itinerant speech therapist in this area. And I was then employed and teaching in three different schools. And it was the senior lecturer who gave them uh, my name. And so I didn't have to apply for anything, but, but I started. And then, in fact, in 1959, that was been teaching for about two uh, years. And 1959, the old Progressive Party was launched. And I joined the Progressive Party because it was the only Liberal Party at that time and started getting more and more involved in politics. And I then ran Colin Eglin's election campaign in Seapoint. Um, In the first election, we lost, and the second election, we just lost by 234 votes, and the third election won. I became very involved in politics, and in fact, during those early 70s, our house became a safe house where we um, hid political fugitives, and there was a code, and I would get a call which said, oh, Marlene, your friend Jennifer's from is here from boarding school, and she'd love you to come and have coffee with uh, dinner with us this evening. Would you be available? And I'd say, of course I would. That would be wonderful. Where shall we meet? And you know, they gave all sorts of places. And I said, what time? They say seven o'clock. Absolutely, I'll be there. And seven o'clock, usually three fugitives would be dropped off at our home. The protocol was I would never ask their names because we didn't know, you know, what would happen in the future. They only stayed for about two nights or three nights and then moved on. And, you know, a few months later, the same thing would happen. But what was interesting was I knew that the police had a dossier on me. Well, I wasn't, I thought it could, must have been the police because periodically my phone would ring And I'd pick it up and there'd be heavy breathing, beware. I knew there was something and I had to be very cautious because I had young children. And, you know, I knew if I just overstepped the line, I would be abandoning them and probably be imprisoned. But at that time, I had stopped teaching for the department and I was teaching privately so I could adapt my lessons according to the needs of my children. But one night... During an election campaign, I was busy working in the office because we had just completed a meeting and I heard a noise and I opened the door and I saw a man just disappearing behind the wall going down the steps. I turned to come back into the office and on the wall, I saw hammer and sickle 
that had been dored onto the wall in red paint and it said, Jew nigger lover. And I got such Mm -hmm. a fright because I realized that was Scorpio. And you know, that was an extreme right-wing group. And they used to daub the officers and throw petrol bombs into the homes of people they considered to be liberal. Probably 10 minutes later, phone rang and I was in the office and it was the Cape Times. And they said, are you aware that the wall of your office has been daubed? Because Scorpio always contacted the Cape Times to tell them that they had what they had done because they wanted publicity. I get goosebumps just listening to the story. I mean, I get goosebumps. And the amount of fear that must have gone through you. I think people lived in a constant state of fear because you knew you were being watched. Did you feel brave and courageous? I never thought about bravery and courageous. I knew what I needed to do, but I also knew did not want to abandon my children. And the Cape Times came the following morning and I showed them, you know, the wall. I was standing outside the following morning to my horror. Front page of the Cape Times was a huge picture of the hammer and sickle sign. I was standing next to it and I didn't realize I was included in the photograph. Lunchtime that day, I got a call from the police to say, are you aware that your photograph is in the Cape Times and your name has been included. I said, yes, I am. And the police said, we are extremely worried about your safety. You are the only people with the surname Silbert in Seapoint. So it will not be difficult for Scorpio to track down your address and We are very concerned about that because, as you know, they frequently throw petrol bombs into the homes of these people. They said, we would like to give you 24-hour protection so that you can be safe. And I said, well, thank you so much. And my heart was beating because I knew exactly that they were not concerned about my protection, but they wanted to monitor what was happening. They said, from five o'clock this afternoon, we will be giving you 24-hour protection. Five o'clock that afternoon, the police arrived. There were three of them. And I was in my study and there was looking all my books on the shelves because there were a few banned books. And I did have those banned books, but I wasn't that stupid. I'd replaced the covers. So when they looked, they couldn't find any. And I saw this one officer turn to the other and nod and smile. They then said, we would like to inspect your house. And I said, with pleasure. We went all over the house and all was fine. And they were outside. Now, my husband was a medical doctor and he did an enormous number of house calls at night. And every time he went out, whether it was 11 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning, within two minutes, the phone would ring, heavy breathing, beware. Now, this happened every time he went out, which was very frequently. Who would have known? Within two minutes of him leaving, other than the police sitting outside, about a week after they were there, I got a call. The usual code, oh, Molly, your friend, you know, and another, another name. Would you be available to have dinner with us? And I said, you know, 
please give her my love. I am so sorry, but I'm busy marking assignments and I've got a deadline. I can't they realize something was wrong. And, you know, this happened. And I think a few weeks later, they phoned again and they said, are you still so busy? And I said, I am so busy. Anyway, after about, it was over three weeks when the police came to me and said, no, we think all is well. You are quite safe. And away they went, thank God. And then in the 1970s, also in the midst of all that, the government introduced Christian national education. And I was on a subcommittee of the Jewish Board of Deputies. And we had a meeting and one of the, and the chairman said, you know, we're extremely worried because with Christian national education, Jewish children or children of who were not Christians were allowed to leave the classroom, were not required to remain for Christian national education. I think it was two mornings, two, um, on two mornings, two periods a week. Initially, these children were excused, but they created havoc. They were playing outside. They were screaming, just as we would expect these children to do. And then the, the teacher said, I'm sorry, we cannot excuse them from the classroom. They may sit at the back of the classroom and they need not participate. So the chairman of the board said, a number of parents Jewish parents have come to us and said they are extremely worried that their children are being indoctrinated because their children have come home and said, you know, mum, you know, dad, I find Christianity so much more interesting than Judaism. (laughs) The chairman said, what are we going to do? So without thinking too much, I said, you know, I have an idea. Maybe If we send letters to the parents of the Jewish children and asked whether any of them had a teaching background, whether they were not fully employed and could perhaps volunteer to come and teach our children about Jewish education during these lessons. At that time, I happened to be serving on the school governing body of Camps Bay. So my children were at Camps Bay Primary and Camps Bay High. And I said, and that's what made me think there were a number of um, Jewish children at that school. So the chairman of the board said, Pauline, that's a great idea. You have a teaching background. Would you be prepared to take on this project? I said, sure. Well, I went home and I thought, are you mad? Are you absolutely crazy? I mean, what do you know about, you're not a Jewish scholar. How are you going to undertake this? You've just got more guts than common sense. And I couldn't sleep for a few nights. And I thought, after a few nights, I thought to myself, you know, actually, if I agreed to arrange such a program, we could teach modern Jewish history. I could teach about the Holocaust, the evils of prejudice, racism, and discrimination, sensitize children to what was happening in South Africa without talking politics, because I knew you were not allowed to talk politics in the school, but I could sensitize these children. And I thought, wow. And also, I thought, if I introduce some of the festivals 
I could actually relate them also to contemporary society. And I immediately thought of Purim, where you've got a gift, a gift to a friend, a gift to the poor. And I thought I could actually take them into townships to show them the poor. So I immediately went to see the principal and the prince of Kemsbeck. And the principal of the school said to me, Marlene, it's a wonderful idea, but you know you will have to get endorsement from the Department of Education. We can't employ people without the endorsement. I said, you know, if I went to tell them what I wanted to do, they would not endorse it because I couldn't show them that it was a sustainable, good program. I think I need first to do a pilot program, then If it works, I can go to the department. He said, no, I do agree. You may certainly do that. We sent letters to the parents of these Jewish children. We had 12 volunteers and we started the program. And at that time, Rabbi David Rosen was the rabbi in Maria Roadshaw. I had a lot of contact with him because he was a very liberal rabbi. And we used to meet for coffee probably once a month to discuss politics. And so I thought, I know I can always call on David when I need assistance, which I did. Anyway, we started at Camps Bay and within a few months, it seemed to be going so well. So I started going to other schools and with the same story, exactly what I said, within one year, we were operating in 17 different schools where the Jewish parents were volunteering to assist. And then at the end of the second year, I sent a letter to the Department of Education. By then, I had already written teacher manuals for different grades for primary school and gave it to the volunteers. So I contacted the Department of Education and they said, yes, we would like to meet you. And I went and there were about 12 people around the table. And they said, yes, we have heard about the programs that you have initiated. And the superintendent general said to me, there are a few questions, however, we would like to ask you. And they asked me a few questions, which were very simple questions. I mean, I have a teaching background, so I didn't have many problems. And then he said to me, no, Mrs. Silbert, that's fine. We approve. You may carry on. But one thing we want to ask you. Number one, will you share your manuals with our educators? I said, of course, because I took them with me. And secondly, would you have a meeting with our inspectors of religious studies? I said, certainly I would, because he said, we would like you to share your experiences. I said, with the greatest of pleasure. Anyway, two years later, which was now 1976, I got a call from the principal of Herzliya High School to say, you know, we're desperately in need of a Jewish studies teacher. Would you be prepared to come and teach the school? I said, well, you know, I must tell you, I'm not a Jewish scholar. I can only teach modern Jewish history and I can teach about the festivals. He said, we have no problem with that. You come. Anyway, so I started at Herzliya High School and the following year was Republic Day. And on Republic Day, there was a great celebration at the school and dancing and singing. And I went to see the principal the day after. I said, how can you celebrate Republic Day? I'm absolutely shocked. 
He said, you know, we have to celebrate Republic Day. That is an instruction from the Department of Education. And if we do not follow the instructions, they can withdraw our subsidy. I said, I have read the instruction. It does not say you must celebrate. It says you must commemorate. He said, well, will you do it next year? I said, with pleasure. Following year, I had an imam, a priest, and a rabbi coming to the school, and they spoke about their vision for a peaceful South Africa, and all gave a prayer for peace. Marlene, absolutely fascinating stories. We haven't got time at the moment to talk about the work that you did at the Holocaust Museum and, of course, the work that you continue to do now with Interfaith. So I will definitely be in touch with you and we will have you back as a guest to talk a little bit more about that. In the meantime, just to say thank you very much. Marlene Silvich is one of those featured in the book Menches in the Trenches. She is one of the, I don't know what a female mensch is, but she's certainly one of them. And, um, yeah, if you want to hear her story or those of others, um, please buy the book Menches in the Trenches. In the meantime, Moline, thank you so much for joining me. Great pleasure. Thank you, Therese.